Bloodbath and Beyond, Episode 5. I'm Casey Mitchum. This is Bert and Cody. And to hammering down the finer points of Fist of Legend with our bare hands. We're really going to belt this one out today, aren't we? Oh, so many puns. And uh, just fair warning, we are going to uh, break in half a sign that says no spoilers allowed today. So if you haven't seen the film yet or you don't want to be familiar with anything that happens before you go see it, come back to us after you've seen it. If not, then stick with us. Hopefully our enthusiasm will inspire you to go find it for yourself. I think you'll be happy that you stuck around to listen to this particular episode, as this is a movie both of us are very fond of. And, uh, this is probably the first time, other than that tease of Grandmaster during our last podcast, that you're really going to see Bert's new enthusiasm for kung fu movies. It is uh, one of my favorite genres. I love it. Always will. And this is, uh, I think, I believe this is your favorite Jet Li film as well. It is. Uh... And at the very least, to be like top three, you know, maybe with like martial arts of Shaolin and uh, Once Upon a Time in China two, being the other favorites. But this one has to be number one. It's it's just clearly his best work. It's the movie he can't top. No, and he has not topped yet, <laughs> and he won't. So let's get right into it then. All right. Um, this is a remake of Bruce Lee's Fist of Fury. Uh, and a much better remake at that, just across the board. I mean, there's some classic stuff in the Bruce Lee picture, but that was hampered by some extremely wooden directing from uh, Lo Wei. Hmm. We did that one, and he also followed it up with the Jackie Chan misfire, or part of Jackie Chan's awkward Bruce Lee imitation career with uh, New Fist of Fury. That's that period before Jackie sort of found his comedy legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the pre-Snake and the Eagle shadow. I mean, I guess let's just get right into the plot of this one. Yeah. This, uh, this movie takes place in 1937 during the Japanese occupation of Shanghai. Um, and it's about real-life people, uh, as in Hui Yanjia and, Chen, and his student Chen Jin. And there's been a good deal of movies based on two of them. Kind of like Wong Pei Hong, Feng Chai Yuk, or uh, Yip Man. And uh, Jet Li's played almost all of those figures except for Yip Man. Give him time. Yeah. There's, there will always be more Yip movies coming. I'm sure he'll be in the next Yip Man movie. There's already been like, what, five in the last five years, at least. Most of them good. But uh, in this movie, Jet Li plays Chin Jin. Yeah. He later plays his own master, Huo Yanjia, in Fearless. Uh, funny enough, Fearless, in my opinion, was his best movie since Fist of Legend. Especially the Chinese cut. So as long as he sticks to that that narrative, yeah, the time he period. can make his best work. Yeah. Uh, and this movie, getting right into the plot point, uh, deals with the early death of Hui Yanjia during a fighting tournament against the Japanese master and the subsequent retribution dealt out by his student against the Japanese dojo that's in Shanghai. Um, this... So it's important, it's important to note, I guess, for just for history's sake, that this is supposed to be a time period in which China is occupied by several colonialist powers, including Japan. Yeah. This is uh, during that, it was kind of when China was really biting it hard when they did not industrialize like Japan had or the Western powers had. They're being referred to by other countries as the sick men of the East. They're considered the weakest power among the Eastern powers. Now, during the time of when this really occurred was 1910. But for one reason or another, this was bumped up to 1937 for this particular film. Uh, I think maybe that was to make the Japanese resentment even stronger, because by this time, Japan would have invaded Manchuria and raped and pillaged that pretty brutally. And also in 1937, there was the infamous Rape of Nanjing, which one of the worst cases of mass murder by the Japanese Imperial Army during Absolutely. World War II period. And I think, too, you know, it, it's helpful visually for them 
to build up even further resentment of the Japanese by being able to play off of the uniforms that we that even internationally we recognize as sort of being the look that they had during World War Two. Yeah, um, the Bruce Lee film. Well, if you put it into context, that was not made that much longer after World War Two. That was still very fresh in certain people's minds. And that film carries over a venomous uh, resentment towards Japan. Like, it's incredibly anti-Japanese across the board. Uh, in that movie, they always go back and forth showing the differences between a Bruce Lee's Kung Fu school, which is composed of brick, and the Japanese one made out of paper. And how does Bruce Lee kill the final bad guy in Fist of Fury? He kicks him through his own paper wall and he dies. <laughs> That's what you call visual metaphor right there, children. Yeah, it's a that that movie definitely has a, a heightened sense of uh the propaganda yeah. that it's really trying to sell. I whereas... think even the head bad guy has like this ridiculously curly mustache. Like he's he's a mustache twirling villain. Uh, Bruce Lee's school, they have women train alongside the men. At the Japanese school, the only woman at, is uh, like a, a sexy dancer. She just takes off all of her clothes. This, so, so with this movie then, I mean, we, we definitely have some of that. We definitely have some anti-Japanese sentiment, but six, almost 60 years has passed since those events. Yeah. And so cooler heads kind of prevailing here yeah um the movie opens in japan the character of chen jin was studying in japan at the time and in this film they they gave him a japanese girlfriend uh whereas in that, well, that wasn't at all the case in the, the bruce lee picture and so, so it's he, already a little more pc which is but he, he's he's studying at kyoto university and almost instantly uh these Japanese guys in uh, sort of kendo clothing bursted, and they're, yeah, they're, they're with the Black Dragon Gang or something. Yeah, and they're going to force out any students that are Chinese. And they, they try to show a couple of the friendlier uh, Japanese students try to stand up for Chin. No, yeah, throughout this movie, they do present two sides of Japan. There's the militaristic right-wing side, with the students at the beginning and, you know, the main bad guys. And then there's the more traditional, uh, harmonious Japanese people. Represented by uh, the ambassador. Yeah. And uh, Jet's girlfriend, Mitsuko, and her uncle, and her uncle. Master uh, Funakoshi. Yeah. Played by Yasuaki Karada. Oh, yes. It should and... be a name you Kung Fu movie fans should be very familiar with. Uh, what would they know him from? Uh, they would know him from uh, Heroes of the East was probably his best known picture. He fights Gorgio in that one. He's a ninja which, master. Which is another movie that involves uh, Chinese-Japanese relations and relationships. Yeah, it does. And that one, uh, like this film, that, that one's ra radical at the time because it was a more fair portrayal of Japan as, a, as an honorable, honorable group of martial artists. I mean, there's a certain Chinese uh, bias in that one, of course, about Chinese martial arts. But that one also, that one's also very comedic, considering the time it was made. You know, it's made around the same time that Fist of Fury shows up. Uh, just a few years later, really. But it's it's got a much more tongue-in-cheek approach to how it portrays the Japanese. Yeah, there's the... What is he? It's like, I think he uses, like, those Japanese size... He's like the guy who's always twitching his nose. The mustache okay, I... Gordon Liu fights. He's, he's, really, he's, supposed to, he's meant to be a comedian. Yeah. Very memorable. Yeah. Um, but so in this movie, uh, we have a brief fight. It's our first fight of the movie. And Jet wipes the floor with the Black Dragon Clan in the classroom. Oh, yeah. It's actually a fight scene reminiscent of a Kurosawa picture called Redbeard. Um, and, and that movie, I think, Toshiro Mofune like, grabs a guy by the jaw and wiggles it out of joint, out of place. Which Jet replicates here. Yeah. Um, I love how, oh, God, Jet does, like, these awesome, like, bone-breaking and dislocating movements, not just with the guy's jaw. There's, like, a guy who stupidly has his leg propped up on a table for a second. Jet, of course, hyperextends it by kicking it 
like right in the knee joint on top, so it like bends completely the wrong way. It looks really painful. And he like I think he throws a guy through a window and uh, he does like a cool little flip move. The guy slams against the wall. It's a it's it's a really impressive way to open the movie and kind of shocking that in the very first battle we already have Jet snapping bones. Yeah. Um, and this was kind of the end period of there in the early '90s in Hong Kong cinema. There was a long string of these historical epic movies, and the one that started that trend was the first Once Upon a Time in China, where Jet Li played Wong Fei Hung. Um, and all of those pictures, though, they they relied heavily on extensive wire work. Um, this movie has very little wire work in it, and as and such, the, uh, the, the camera work improves not just the fight choreography um in this movie it, it's like a norson wells movie you can see the ceilings though the camera angles are much more sophisticated because in those wire work movies they always had to hide the ceilings because that's where all the wire rigs were placed so it's more here, dynamic look here there's much less to hide because it really just comes down to the superiority of the choreography yeah and you can really see how uh skilled and powerful Jet Li is. So the the fight ends with uh, his Japanese girlfriend Mitsuko's uncle, as you know we mentioned before, Master Funakochi coming in, and uh, he's <laughs> he's sort of presented as a warm figure almost right away. Like he he comes in and just sort of chastises his own clan members and snaps their bones back into place, and yeah, is impressed by Chin's skill and sort of realizes very quickly that he is a student of of uh, Huo Yanja, mm-hmm. who he informs has died. <laughs> yeah, way to break the Jin. news. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he informs him he's died in a match against Japanese martial artists. Yeah. Um, and so Jet right away gets onto a quick boat to China. <laughs> he's the only man not in a uniform going to China. Yeah, he still wears his uh, Japanese school uniform. But, but it's it's a pretty much a mil, it's a military vessel it looks like, yeah. And uh, and he returns to uh, Shanghai to go back to the Jingwu School. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time he shows uh, shows up, uh, there's a bunch of children surrounding him. Further suggests <laughs> like his Japanese outfit is a little other place. And this is where the uh, Bruce Lee picture started. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't have like any kind of introductory. Here's this badass in Japan scene. It just goes right to. Bruce, and it's like a rainy funeral, and he's like digging through the mud to get to his master's grave. He's, and he's wearing an all-white outfit. I'll tell you, one of my favorite things was me. You mentioned the kids around him, and I mean those kids are beggars. But this is a fairly constant thing in this movie, where anytime Chen Jin is going anywhere, uh, there's always a crowd of people that are very excited to see him, and yeah, are begging him for kung fu lessons and. Yeah, here it's like, oh, it's Japanese guy, he's loaded. And later on, it's like, it's Chen Zhen, he's a badass. He, all the pedicab drivers are coming out of the woodworks and <laughs> wanting to run with Chen Zhen while he jogs. It's... Yeah. Maybe that that was a, a better callback. In the Bruce Lee picture, there's a scene where there's a, a bad guy in a rickshaw and Bruce lifts it up. like, And it's very obviously pulled up by some wires. It's a really silly effect, and one of one of one of a few that Bruce hated in that movie. Mm-hmm. Thought it was too silly. Uh, so, so when he goes to the Jingwu School, he finds out that his master's son Huo Ting In has become the new master of the school. Yeah. Uh, you know, he does the proper mourning thing, and then it immediately goes to the Japanese dojo to challenge Ryuichi Akutagawa, uh, who is a judo fighter who allegedly killed Huo Yanja. Yeah. Um, I, in my opinion, this is one of, I, I think, one of the best edited, one of the best shot fight scenes of all time. <laughs> this this sequence inside of the dojo. It is a recreation of the Bruce Lee one pretty, pretty much, but it's so much better. It's fantastic. Oh, my uh, God. Like, because Okudagawa's students try to gang up on Shinjin to keep him from ever even seeing the master. And even the first shot of this fight is very memorable, in which a guy tries to step up on Jet Li, and he just sort of grabs him by the side of the head and shoves him down sideways. 
<laughs> yeah, before they all surround him. Um, I, I like that uh, Jet's character in this one is more of the uh, strong, silent type. He's more of the Gary Cooper in this picture. Uh, where in the Bruce Lee one, he's got to like pose a little bit. And then he does like the quick movement when everyone's trying to move in and makes a move back. Uh, Quentin Tarantino duplicated that in uh, Kill Bill. And then, and then Bruce has to the like kind of... Yeah, he has to unbutton his shirt and take it off, you know. The, the 1972 version is probably more of a product of its time where they felt like they really had to have characters talking all the time. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you know, it's a little more of a modern sensibility. It's 1994 in there. They're they're willing to just let the character's action speak for itself. Yeah, I, I like how he just, he just shows up and starts whooping ass just immediately. And whoop ass he does i mean <laughs> oh man just um <laughs> he kicks one guy and he slides like a, a bowling ball and knocks all of his buddies down like a bunch of pins it's great and there's this one shot it, it's a hitchcock angle I, I love to call it it's an overhead and a bruce i mean a jet does all these spinning kicks and he's just knocking guys like off screen and he does it so quickly it just blows my mind every time. There's like a there's a little callback to Bruce where a guy runs up behind him and Jet grabs him by the by the gonads and lifts him up. <laughs> and funny enough, some of the guys that uh, Jet fought <laughs> at the beginning in Kyoto show up in this fight scene. <laughs> if you pay really? attention to to some of the stuntmen or the some of them are the same. <laughs> There's only so many Hong Kong stuntmen willing to be grabbed by the balls, I guess. I guess willing to play Japanese characters. Yeah. As so many of the so many of the uh, the Japanese characters in the movie are played by Chinese actors. Yeah. I mean, well, Yuan Ping, who did the fight choreography, has I guess a certain amount of stuntmen he trusts and he knows who can do the stunt work and take pratfalls really well. And I mean, and that's a running theme in a lot of Hong Kong cinema, isn't it? That most choreographers and even actors have a their own stunt teams that they trust. Oh yeah, Jackie had his, and Samuel had his, and those two stunt teams were actually more like rivals during the '80s. Who could fall through more glass or whatever? Who could sure, get hit a, harder? It's a matter of escalation. And if you look, at, I, I saw an interview with Mars, who was one of Jackie's premier stuntmen. I saw an interview with him now, and his face looks terrible. It looks like he's been beaten over the face over and over, which he has been. <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to be a stuntman, kids, you know, maybe, you know, think about what it's going to do to your face. So after Chin has hammered down all of the students, uh, Akutagawa shows up, and you think that they're going to... So far, the movie has led you to believe that Akutagawa is going to be our major villain. Uh, so I was prepared for maybe a brief fight in which neither could really get the the advantage over the other, and it was going to build to something bigger later. But no, uh, Shinjin beats Akutagawa pretty commandingly and very quickly and realizes uh, that there's no way that this man could have beaten his master. Yeah, I love how Jet goes about it. He starts out kind of like at a, a longer distance, and then he keeps getting in his face and just stares at him. Right. <laughs> and uh, every time Akutagawa tries to react to that, Jet just like grabs his hand and throws him, and then he gets him right back into his face. <laughs> you can see it's very clear. There's no way his master would have lost to this guy in a fair fight. So so this is the first time that the, the idea of foul play is brought up in regards to how Yan Jia dies. Yeah. Yeah, there's a whole uh, grave excavation sequence. And Jet, who was studying uh, engineering in Kyoto, apparently knows how to perform an autopsy. <laughs> well, he, he has the help of an English doctor. <laughs> well, the doctor was too wimpy to do the autopsy. He's like, oh, I'm a doctor, not a pathologist. That's right. He opens the body. He opens the uh, the co the coffin. He can't bear the smell of Yanja. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Jet reaches in and just pulls out the you know what was it the kidney or the liver? It's the liver. He pulls out the liver yeah. on his own. And they test for poison, and, and lo and behold, there's signs of poisoning in the master's liver. 
It takes them all of 10 seconds to make this determination, too. So They didn't need to spend too much time no. on it. We got ass-kicking to get to here. That's right. That's right. But, uh, so, you know, the word of Chin's victory against Akutagawa is spreading around China. So he's already becoming a local celebrity, as we sort of mentioned before, with people really singing his praises for being a Chinese person that's brave enough to stand up against the Japanese. Uh, meanwhile... Uh, Huo Ting-in, uh, Young Jia's son, who now owns the dojo, he's sort of seeking comfort uh, in a brothel with a prostitute he's romantically involved with. And... Yeah, the runner-up for Miss Hong Kong. Oh, really? Yeah. I forgot that actress's name. Uh, Ada Choi. Ada Choi, okay. She's beautiful, though. And, uh, I mean, in a different cut, I believe... He's also shown smoking opium. Yeah, he's quite a bit. He's got a couple of vices, Ting on. So he's 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 clearly not practicing his martial arts perhaps as much as he should. Yeah. And we do cut back uh, to the Japanese dojo with uh, and we're introduced to a much more stern and physically uh, intimidating figure named General Fujita. Ah, my favorite character in this movie. Played by uh, Canadian uh, Muay Thai champ Billy Chow. Chinese-Canadian. Um, a Chinese-Canadian playing a Japanese general. That's perfect. <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. Um, and Akutagawa confronts him because he's just heard that Fujita deliberately had Master Hua poisoned. And uh, Akutagawa, as it turns out... To uh, he's a pretty honorable guy, and this bothers him tremendously. Yes. And so uh, Fujita goes all Bane on him and snaps him <laughs> he, back. He outbanes Bane. I have never seen a backbreaker. <laughs> I've watched I've watched a billion backbreakers, <laughs> but I've never seen a backbreaker breaker in which someone can lift someone completely over their head and drop them <laughs> like eight nine feet down onto their knee. <laughs> it's pretty spectacular. <laughs> Kudos to Gordon Chan, the director, and Yuan Mo Ping. <laughs> it can make that look really painful and powerful. Because you know that that man is dead. Oh. Not, yeah. only, not only does Vegeta kill him, he kills him right in front of the Japanese ambassador. The, the ambassador who's a bit, yeah, he's more he's one of the more PC characters like we were talking about. He does not like uh, this Fujita character. He's ultra-white, right-wing, and militaristic. And this guy is more left-wing and wants... To bring about a sort of peace between the two nations. Yeah, he, he, it's like, oh, well, let's go about this comfortably, you know. China's well, there's there's political ways we can handle this. Yeah. But uh, he decides, in a sort of fit of inspiration, that he's going to blame the death of Akutagawa on Shenzhen. Yeah, and this leads right in. Um, yeah, I think right in front of the dojo, there's the body of Akutagawa, and all of his students find him, and it has like a death threat from Tenzin, or like, Revengeance is Mine, or something. I, I think it's valuable at this point, too, to sort of bring up, you know, perhaps why a character like General Fujita would want Huo Yanja dead. Uh, which is that Huo Yanja at that time in history, or at least, you know, in real history in 1910, was essentially a symbol of Chinese strength at a time when China was weak and being carved up by colonial powers. Mm -hmm. uh, in in wrestling terms, he's sort of their Hulk Hogan. Uh, he's he's a really brave patriot that fights foreigners, or at least allegedly fights foreigners. A, a Russian wrestler will show up and proclaim that China is full of sick weaklings, and you know, and then he'll call, he'll put an ad out in the paper and threaten, you know, that he can beat anyone in China, and no one's brave enough to take his challenge. And then Huo Yanja allegedly takes the challenge and. The Russian wrestler withdraws his comment and says, it's all just for show, man, I'm sorry, and leaves town. And a, a boxer named Hercules O'Brien shows up, and he sets up a boxing match where the first person to get knocked down between him and Huo Yanja uh, will be the loser. History differs on whether or not this match ever actually occurs. Either it did and Huo Yanja won, or Hercules O'Brien skipped town before it even took place. Uh, but there was there was a lot of things like that where the papers would really carry this propaganda of how strong Huo Yanja was and how he would take he would take out all these foreign powers that you know dared to dared to besmirch the name of the people of China. 
He was and all it, about the promos. He's all about the promos. And, you know, he in his life, he did suffer from chronic tuberculosis. Yeah, I, I think in the movie they say he has asthma. Yes. Um, so, I mean, he was definitely a person that was that needed to be medicated quite a bit. And historically, too, it is said that he was poisoned, although it's it's unclear whether this was a Japanese plot or a or just a matter of the fact that arsenic was a huge part of Chinese medicine at the time. Although, you know, it's been it's been said that given the fact that at the, around the time of his death, uh, Huayang Zha was spending a lot of time with Japanese judo teams hmm. uh, and, 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 and given a doctor that the Japanese judo team recommended for him, that it could be very possible that there was deliberate sabotage in his murder. And, you know, for more on his life, go see Jet Li's movie Fearless. Yeah, so, and that, also, he's, he's kind of like uh, Mozart. And uh, the Japanese are like Salieri. We don't quite know if they poisoned him or not. If anyone who's seen Amadeus, you know that, too. <laughs> so, I mean, so obviously, it's a valuable thing for, for Japan to be able to uh, murder this guy and really bring down the morale of the Chinese people who are starting to sort of rally around his patriotic message. And yeah, Chen Zhen becomes kind of the new figurehead. And that's, I guess that's the influence behind wanting, or Fujita wanting to have him rubbed out. Because really it's not explained otherwise. Yeah. Um, and so with the murder of Akutagawa, he gives a good reason for the Japanese students to go over there with their uh, katanas to try to, to go chop up the Chinese Kung. Yeah, he wants to destroy it. They, they just come to the Jingwu school yeah. and threaten to lay waste to it. Made of brick. Made of brick. <laughs> and, the uh, and really, the, one of the most callous things they attempt to do is destroy the shrine of Huoyang. Um, This is a pretty great fight that showcases, uh, that, that shows up here when the Japanese show up. Uh, it showcases uh, Chen Tzu Ho's talents, who is the brother. He, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Chen Tzu Ho plays uh, Hua Tingan. Uh, the and, master of the Jingwu school. Yeah, the new headmaster, son of uh, Hua Yanjia. Our opium smoker. Yeah. He's the brother of Chen Karlock. The actor is. Uh, you might know Chen Karlock as the hero from the picture Operation Scorpio. That's where I know him from. Yeah. And he was in a ton of Jackie Chan movies at the time. Um, but this sequence gives a great chance for uh, Chen Tzu Ho to show off his skills. He because does, Chin like, Jin is elsewhere. Yeah, he's, he's off jogging and all the rickshaw guys are joining in. So he's, he's off being kind of the cool star of the area. He's enjoying being a local celebrity. This is one of those fights, like, everyone's using a weapon, but nobody dies. Yeah. <laughs> There's some great stuff with people getting thrown through windows. and I think Chen, like... When his pole gets cut in half, he like whaps uh, a window, and the glass flies into the the eyes of like some Japanese fighters. It looks it's pretty brutal, but it's pretty cool. There are quite a few Japanese guys that get a just a shower of glass thrown on them. Oh yeah, there's some great glass stuff. And th of course, that's the means of Tien trying to defend his father's shrine. Like they're sna they're smashing the mirrors around it, trying to do everything to protect it outside of destroying the picture and the shrine itself. Yeah. Um. And then Chen Jin comes back. Yeah, Chen Jin comes back. The fight is broken up by the cops. Um, the lead cop is played by uh, Yuan Chong Yan, who is um, Yuan Woping's brother. He looks just like him. <laughs> he's, he's got the he's the balding guy with the glasses. He looks like he's wearing a safari hat. Uh, and uh, and Chin is willing to let himself be arrested and put on trial for the false uh, the, for the framed murder of Akutagawa. Anything that'll help out his kung fu brothers. That's right. That's yeah. right. He does he doesn't want any blame to be placed on the foot of the Jingwu school. Yeah. And it looks things are looking pretty dark for Chin Jin in court. Like, it looks like he's going to get nailed to the wall with this murder. There's a lot of false witnesses and conflicting accounts. And, then the, and the court doesn't the court doesn't want to accept any testimony from Chinese witnesses. Yeah, and it's, uh, it has a, a British judge who's trying to hurry up so he can get to his croquet match. <laughs> or is it a cricket match? It's cricket. <laughs> something very British. Yeah, something very British. Uh, but... In Chen Jin's defense is Mitsuko, who shows up as her own surprise witness. 
Yes, his Japanese girlfriend has come to Shanghai just to give testimony on his behalf. Yep. But her testimony is also false. It's false, but it uh, it saves Chen Jin's life. Or... That's right, because she alleges that he could not have he could not have been near Kudagawa the night before because he was in her hotel room. Making and this leads. Yeah, this leads. That was such an awkward sequence. Uh, you know, what were you, what were you two doing? Sleeping? Well, that's not all a man and a woman can do in bed. Oh, <laughs> and of course, this leads to all of Chin Jin's friends like going, "What did she say? I don't speak Japanese." I'm, I'm guessing all the students at Jingwu, or most of them, are versions, with the exception of Chin and uh, <laughs> uh, Ting An. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this, you know, this is enough to get him out because the British judge just doesn't want to put up with this crap anymore. He has to go play rugby. <laughs> I'm just naming every British sport I yeah, know. Yeah, and to point out some of the racism at the time, they accept the Japanese testimony at the court because of the Japanese occupation. Because they they were not going to accept anybody who would be biased toward Shenzhen because the Chinese, of course, by default, would be biased. But a Japanese testimony is more believable in the eyes of the court. Yes. Uh, and right, right after this, um, Mitsuko tries to move into Jingwu, and, uh, that doesn't go over well at all. Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a couple students that are maybe willing to accept her, but overwhelmingly not. No, the, the cook says he refused to cook for a Japanese girl. Um, Ting An has a little spiel about how we can't trust the Japanese. They've done so much to us lately, that we just cannot accept it. And so, how do they settle this? Well, with their fists. With their fists of legend. Uh, Tenjin and Tingon have uh, an excellent duel in the movie. Yes. And during this time, uh, we've seen that there's been a lot of resentment that Tingon has towards Chen. Because Chen... He's a lot better. He's learned new skills in Japan. There, there was an earlier training sequence where he's he's showing off new skills to uh, the like, to the students. Yeah, yeah he's, he's learned in Japan. Yeah, he's showing skip rope, and he does kind of like this spinning back kick sort of thing that is very much a Bruce Lee-ish kind of kick. I mean, these... and, that we, and that we see the other students in later sequences practicing. Yes, and it's not traditional Chinese kicking at all. So this all leads up to this fight scene that we have. And Ting On does a very traditional Chinese fighting style. And Jet Jet starts out doing traditional too. And he's holding back clearly because Ting On is his friend. He's his buddy. He doesn't want to hurt yes. him. Well, and also they, Ting On sort of put the stake on it that the winner would be the master of Jing Wu, which is not something that Chen Jin necessarily wants. And yeah, Chen Jin wants uh, Ting On to save face. He doesn't, want, he doesn't want to make him look bad. Um, so he does, he deliberately... Yeah, he wants, him, he wants him to carry on his father's legacy. That is until, uh, during the fight, Chen Jin looks behind and he sees Mitsuko looking... Uh, she looks very concerned and worried. He can't disappoint his girlfriend. That's right. So he goes right into this um, boxing, like, shuffle step style. With another callback to Bruce... Who you know, for his Jeet Kune Do, he just gathered up different aspects of different fighting arts. You know, fencing, boxing, uh, Japanese kicking, um, and it's pretty great. I love watching Jet do. It looks like Muhammad Ali rope a dope or something. Yes. And Tingon has no idea how to counter this, and he just keeps getting popped in the face. And he's he's ultimately humiliated. Yeah. Yeah, but being the honorable guy. Tenjin is when the fight ends. He does a kowtow, like, like the triple bow to um, the shrine for uh, the uh, Huo Yanjia. And and he and Huo uh, Tingin is so humiliated that he decides that he just wants to. He doesn't want to be the master of Jingwu anymore. He just wants to go and be with his lover. There's there's a couple scenes where he's walking uh, Mitsuko around Shanghai, and she's still wearing her Japanese clothes. It's like, come yes. on, come on, Chen, you'd buy her some clothes to blend in here. Yes. Because, as it turns out, everyone in Shanghai starts throwing stuff at her because she looks so Japanese. They won't, they won't let her stay in a, in a Chinese hotel. Yeah. It's... 
I mean, we laugh about that now, but that's actually one of the things I think it would probably be authentic at the time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the, I mean, racism. The, the racism and animosity between those two cultures is, I mean, it's there's still some of that burning today. But so, so when we're laughing at this, we're not necessarily laughing at the idea of a Japanese woman being, um, having stuff pelted at her by Chinese people. We're sort of laughing at how it's portrayed in the film, which is sort of campy. I'm laughing at the fact that Jet couldn't buy her a new outfit. To be fair, Jet doesn't really change his clothes very much in this movie either. <laughs> but uh, so yeah, they have they have to set up shop, uh, and they sort of build themselves a little hut near Woyanja's grave, and Jet sort of resigns himself to being the caretaker of this grave for a time. Yeah, I mean, Mitsuko's got to live... be the best girlfriend in the world, putting up with this. <laughs> We're gonna live in a cemetery. <laughs> A cemetery with mice. Yeah, with mice. <laughs> uh... um, and uh, this time, too, Ting In sort of has his his dalliances with his prostitute, and the Jingwu members of the school discover this relationship and reprimand him a little bit, but he, he learns his lesson. He goes back to Jingwu, and contrary to how they treat Mitsuko, the school is immediately willing to accept the prostitute into their care. And she becomes sort of a member of the Jingwu family, and he's able to have a relationship with her. Yep. One of the Kung Fu sisters, she is. But because she's Chinese, she's acceptable, whereas Mitsuko can never live at Jingwu. And I could totally see that happening back then. Absolutely. Um, but... So uh, at this time, too, uh, Master Funakoji, who we haven't seen since the beginning of the movie, arrives in Japan uh, because he's been sent for by Fujita with the intention of getting rid of Chin Jin. Yep. Um, and this is kind of, this was always confusing to me. It says that a challenge has been accepted by Ting An to fight uh, Funakoji. And it goes right to Funakoji showing up to where Chin Jin's living. Yeah. He shows up to challenge a jet. And it's like he's shown up there to teach him. Like, yeah, and maybe maybe that's out of love for Mitsuko. Yeah. Or maybe it's out of respect for Chinjin. I mean, he seemed to really admire his fighting style. Yeah. And and really, um, Funakochi is sort of presented as a much more honorable man, perhaps in line with Akutagawa, uh, where he probably respected Huo Tingan. Yeah, this is a... Uh, if the movie had any scenes of like martial theory or just philosophy it would be this scene this fight scene coming up with uh Vunikochi shows up at the hut and he challenges chin um and i love how they introduce like their sort of different takes on martial arts chin picks up a rock and punches it in half to demonstrate his power but then Master Funakochi, there's a little piece of paper floating by. It's like these little Taoist papers you have at cemeteries. And he just easily chops it in half, cuts it in half with his hand. It's such an effortless-looking slice. Yeah. All right, for all of you at home, try throwing up a piece of paper and cutting it in half with your hand. It's it's pretty much what you expect from a katana blade in a movie. He's Yeah, it shows his powerful uh, focus. There's a bit of humor here, too, because... Funakochi sort of tries to portray himself as an old man that needs to stretch out. He's not ready for this fight yet. Yeah, and he, he gingerly, you know, folds his clothes and takes off his shoes before the before fight. Before launching himself forward with, like, a hundred-yard kick. <laughs> yeah. Um, in a couple of shots, uh, Karate-san uh, is doubled. And it's an old Hong Kong in camera trick where a little bit of Vaseline would be smeared at the top of the lens. So you kind of obscure the face of the actor being uh, doubled. Um, it works well, though. And Karada, when he is fighting, when you know it's him, he's clearly still really good. I think he's probably in his late 40s, maybe early 50s by the time he had done this movie. And he's still working today. He runs an action school in Tokyo. So any of you aspiring stuntmen... Go check out Master uh, Karada. And I, I think this location of this fight was the same that uh, Gordon the O fought him in in Heroes of the East, where he was the ninja master. Huh. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a callback to that, because those are... I, 
Well, uh, Heroes of the East was a Shaw Brothers production, and this is a Golden Harvest film, which was started by a disgruntled Shaw Brothers employee. And Golden Harvest was sort of the Shaw Brothers of the 90s. Oh, yeah. Uh, they produced even uh, the Ninja Turtles movie. The Golden Really? Yeah, I... the Golden Harvest uh, logo is right before Ninja Turtles. It's... I've never noticed that. Yeah. It just says Golden Harvest and New Line. It was like a co-production. But we're getting off ourselves here because we've sure. got a fight scene to cover. Mm-hmm. This fight scene goes really well. Um, Jet starts doing his shuffle, but then Karada notices it and he starts doing it too. And this is a, this is a, this is a much more evenly matched fight than we've seen previously. I don't think they're really trying to kill each other. No, no. There's there's a lot of respect there. It's pretty obvious in the way that like the facial expressions and everything during the fight. Yeah, they do some great stuff with just throwing each other and kind of doing like some joint locks and taking each other each other down to the ground um, we're sort of seeing some of karate's judo yeah kind of play. it's almost like mma in a way you know the fight starts standing up and then it ends on the ground um but this is not before they jet decides to even up the fight because he notices wind is, keeps blowing in karate's face and he's not properly defending himself so they go to the blindfolds to make it even uh, Jet blindfolds himself, and I like how they both have a they have a black and a white blindfold. Um, <laughs> that oh man, the blindfold fight! I <laughs> that is that is something that only happens in a kung fu movie. Really, it's it's so audacious, but it works. Um, they they do uh. Something like they do in the Wing Chun, and that's uh, Chi Sao sticking hands, which Bruce Lee did. You know, that's that was his traditional kung fu upbringing, um, where you have like your hands touching your opponents, and you're kind of figuring out spacing, and it's really like an exercise to build up your reflexes, and positioning. Um, I just wanted to see them sail off into wildly wrong directions during this fight, but no, they no they're they're. they're they're too they're, good. Yeah. They're very skilled at pinata. These two. <laughs> it's that chi sao skill, just feeling each other out, and then they do like throws. It's great stuff. And you know, it it sort of just ends like that. No one is really harmed. Um... Jet kind of locks up Matt uh, Funakoshi's leg, and Funakoshi has like a little claw grip on Chin's throat, and then they just draw it. It's a draw game. Yeah. And he he apologizes, and, uh, you know, he <laughs> essentially warns Chin about Fujita. Mm-hmm. And well, he, he emphasizes that there's a difference. Like, uh, Master Funakochi is known as the best martial artist in Japan at the time. But he tells him that martial arts is about, you know, maximizing your energy and being the best you can be. If you want to kill somebody, the best way is to use a gun. And that led to one of the more humorous mistranslations in the American one, because when Funakochi mentions a gun, he clearly makes a gun. He kind of pantomimes it. In the American one, he's talking about focusing your energy to a single point. Into a spirit gun. Yeah. Yeah, it's... And sort of just delineates the difference between himself and a Fujita, whereas, you know, Fumio Funakochi just wants to have a fair match and really see who the best in a, who the best is in a fight, in a fair fight. But whereas Fujita doesn't fight except for to kill. Yeah, Fujita he's a, is a he's a killing machine. It cuts right to the classic Fujita training montage. That you love so much. <laughs> Fujita's training montage is my favorite thing in this movie. He he essentially trains by being beaten with planks by his own students, and then immediately goes over to a plank with about eight nails sticking out of it, and just hammers all of them down with his bare palm. <laughs> Presumably, this makes his defense really incredible. This is a callback to the original Fist of Fury because there's a Russian fighter played by Robert Baker who was one of Bruce Lee's students, and he hammers nails with his hands in front of a dojo. 
and it looks really silly in that movie. Like, it's clearly an effect. Here, like, Billy Chow just really fast goes boom, 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 hammers all the nails in. <laughs> it kicks all the bricks in half. He's just <clears throat> this unbreakable steel-bodied man. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, you know, I like how he smashes the one with his head and he wipes the the brick dust off of his hair and kind of, like, cracks his neck a little bit. Just maintains his perfect military poise. Of course. He's a general. That's right. And, wow, we're already at the end of the... We're at the final fight of this movie. Well, not, not before, though. Ting In comes to Chen and apologizes for how he's treated him. Oh, yeah, and he shows off a new... Uh, form he's learned from a different kung fu school. It's, it's the Mizong Fist. Yeah. And he's and he also says that they're willing. Uh, Jing Wu is willing to accept Chin and Mitsuko now. Yeah, he's had a change of heart. I but think... Mitsuko secretly leaves and uh, says that she'll be waiting for him in Japan. Yes. When all of this violence is done with you boys and you're fighting. They needed to write her out of the movie really quickly. Yeah, they couldn't have it. They couldn't have her at the end of the movie, the more of her wincing at like Jet getting hurt or something. Because you know we are at, as you said, the final fight, and this is the place where if anybody, anywhere, anywhere in this movie, if Jet is going to get hurt, it's going to be against General Fujita. Yeah. Um. <laughs> the uh, Ting An does show up to really challenge uh, somebody, but it's just Fujita. I think Ting An was going to fight Master Funakoshi, but he left town early. Yeah, he'd already got he'd already fought Chin Jin, that was his whole intention. Yeah, he was never there to fight Ting An like he had like Ting An had thought. And so Fujita takes it upon himself to fight these Chinese bastards. But not before Fujita exposes the traitor from Jing Wu. Yeah. And that's who something betra- that, who betrayed and poisoned the master. That's something I would like to mention about the original. In the original, Jet Li, I mean uh, Bruce Lee, is going around, and he's just beating the crap out of every Japanese he can find, and he accidentally discovers that his master was poisoned, and that the guy who poisoned them was Japanese because he sees what his nipple looks like. <laughs> I am not making that up. Um. <laughs> That is the most bizarre way of identifying. He's like, someone. so you're a Japanese, are you? <laughs> I didn't. I see. This is my. This is my fault. I did not realize that Chinese and Japanese could be identified by their nipples. It well, maybe it wasn't his nipple, but it's like uh, the Japanese guy has his shirt off, and the camera zooms in, and like his nipples like center screen. It has to be <laughs> something weird like that. Some some weird thing that's known by those cultures. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there was a scene in the original where Bruce tries to go to a park and there's a sign that says no dogs or Chinese allowed and he sees a Japanese couple with a dog walk in and so he lifts the sign up and he kicks it in half they do have a callback to that in the final fight of this picture but there's no there's no no dogs or Chinese sign well, well in this movie uh, you know Fujita shoots the traitor in the head yeah right in front of ting on and chin and, and you know and that's 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 sort of him placing the blame of the premeditated murder of Wu young Jia on this guy and how um, little he cares about the life of this uh stoolie exactly um but fujita is armed like he's just standing there with a sign that he has made uh i, I again i think this is another change in translation uh, where in the U.S. edition, it says, um, Mis- the sign says, Jingwu School is closed. Yeah, it's mistranslated. It really the says act- the sick men of Asia. Sick men of Asia, which is, again, the racial slur against Chinese people. That, that's the sign that, at the, the beginning of Fist of Fury, that uh, Jingwu receives. Here, it's at the very end. And I like how uh, Ting On, when he sees that sign, he just rushes Fujita. It starts fighting. And Fujita, in his left, I think his left hand, he's just holding the sign and fighting with his right hand, standing stationary. <laughs> he is so unfazed by Ting An's attempts to fight him. He blocks he his punches with his head. 
which is a reoccurring motif. And, you know, we really see where that being beaten with planks training has really come in handy. He's made his because, pitiful Chinese fists more apparent. Yeah, he, he is he is so stone-faced that he can block anything with his head. Quite literally stone-faced. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, Ting An, you know, he's been spending too much time with his girlfriend and smoking too much opium. He has he does not stand a chance. No, his his little scuffle with Fujita lasts what like twenty seconds. Yeah, and then uh, Fujita and throws he... the sign at Jet, <laughs> and Jet kicks it in half. There we go. Call back to Fist of Fury. But uh, you know, I, I mean, Ting An is more or less incapacitated within those 20 seconds. So it's it's clearly just going to be the Chinjin and Fujita show from here on out. And what a show it is. Oh my gosh, this is some of the best work from Jet ever. I mean, I mean the whole movie and is. Really, this is one of the best boss fights in Kung Fu film history. Yeah, uh, and it's a great... I love the difference in just style and their size like jets like five six he's a pretty little guy billy chow is about six feet tall um he's just a big burly figure for him to fight and he's doing like these hard punches and jets doing like uh modern wushu style kind of things um we, and... we see we see fujita headbutting windows yeah he doesn't care what his head hits as long as it eventually gets to you because the man is made of iron. That's right. He breaks blocks. He will kill. He will kill anyone or do anything if it means uh, gaining the respect of the Japanese emperor. Yep. Uh, and this fight scene is really well. Well, the whole movie is really well lit. The whole, but this one in particular. This one in particular, as they end up fighting in a Japanese garden, uh, like right out, like in the outside of the dojo and i think billy chow like kicks like this stone uh bird bath in half or something <laughs> and he, he punches jet's shoulder out of joint so it's like lethal weapon for a little bit mel gibson's shoulder would always go out of joint it's it's just a really great scene it it can't be underrated it's uh jet does he does all sorts of different um, moves in this scene. Well, different styles. Like, he does, like, this kind of Tai Chi throw after his shoulder's been thrown out. Like, he does... He throws Fujita with... Using, like, his upper body, like, his shoulder. And tripping him up. That was really cool. And Jet harkens back to his uh, Wushu days. When he was the Chinese modern Wushu champ. Now, when I say Wushu... Wushu literally means martial arts in Chinese. But uh, after the communist takeover, they there was a developed a new sort of wushu that was like performance based, where it's a little it's a bit more acrobatic. Speed and acrobatics are emphasized more. Very quick punches, I believe. Yeah, like they do a lot of these aerial spinning movements. Jet does a lot of that. Um, Jet was the Chinese champion, I think, seven years consecutively. I mean, up until he made. You know, his first movie, the original Shaolin Temple picture. So that's really how he gained the attention of the Hong Kong film industry in the first place. Yeah. Well, the first Shaolin Temple movie was a mainland Chinese production, and he's tremendous in it. And he's, what, like 19 when he made that movie? Um, and Jet, I think, was already an expert in external Chinese, you know, kung fu styles. And then he was also an expert in, like, Tai Chi and Bagua. He does a lot of Bagua in The One, if anyone cares to watch that. Um, but this this fight in particular, Jet just shows off, you know, his very extensive skill set. And comes out on top. I mean, it's... Or, or so it seems, because like any good slasher, <laughs> Fujita beaten is not a Fujita beaten. Yeah, unfortunately, Chen kicked him way over to where there happened to be a katana lying around. So he takes the sword and goes after Chen and Ting On after they're trying to leave the dojo. <laughs> and, and Chen has the best response possible, which is to whip off his belt and use it like a nunchaku. Yeah. Probably the final callback to Fist of Fury, because uh, Bruce in the original used a nunchuck 
against the samurai sword, and here Jet uses his belt. It must be some sort of Gordon Chan thing, because uh, in another Jet Li movie he produced, I think, Melt, or was it Meltdown or Hitman? He takes off his belt and starts popping somebody with it. And I love how Jet in this one just keeps popping Billy Chow in the face. It looks really painful. It looks really painful, and, I mean, he sort of catches him by the throat using the belt so that Billy Chow slices his own throat open with his own katana. Yeah, I love how Jet, like, in the midst of popping Fujita in the face, like, he takes a moment to do these really cool poses. He's just really showing off. However, the military come bursts into the room, guns drawn. I mean, Jet just did murder a, a Japanese general. And he still and he still hasn't been completely exonerated in the eyes of the Japanese for the death of Akutagawa. But the the peace talking ambassador shows up, thankfully, and not just the military. So they take they have like this awkward cut to where you think uh, Chen Jin's been killed by the military, but he's really in, in hiding. In the Bruce Lee movie, they have like this freeze frame where he does a flying kick towards the military and they shoot him. In this movie, it's Jet sort of resigns himself to this fate because uh, the Jap- because the ambassador knows that the Japanese government will use Vegeta's death to start a war with China. So the so Jet decides to be the sacrificial lamb yeah. that they can use to account for the death and just sort of sort of have it be the the actions of a lone person rather than a nation. Yeah. Now this movie with Jet was intended to have a sequel. But it was a box office flop. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think because uh, Bruce Lee is, you know, he's still God over there. And especially, especially, you know, I think he'd been dead 20 years by the time they had made this movie. And he was still immensely popular. And to remake a movie of his, I guess, was, I don't know. It, w- it would have been just offensive. There's quite a bit of hubris in that. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and there's also the possibility that given the cooler nature toward Japanese people that any animosity that might have remained, uh, maybe quite a few of the audience members might have felt that this movie was too soft on the Japanese. There's more of a gray area. Yeah. And gray areas don't always go over very well in genre filmmaking. No. We don't want realism. We want black and white. You know, this movie has enjoyed quite a great legacy. I mean, it's now it's considered one of his best movies, and also because of this movie, the Wachowski brothers uh, brought choreographer Young Wu Ping to Hollywood to help them make the Matrix films. Help make him a household name in the West. I That's mean, right. not just on... among you know kung fu movie fans, but you know a lot of people. Sure, I mean he's gone on to do the Matrix films. He's gone on to do Kill the Kill Bill films and several others. Yeah, uh, Crouching Tiger. Well, it's a Taiwanese movie. But uh, it, that was notable because that was, I think, the first Wuja movie to have a wide distribution in this country. An Oscar-winning distribution. Yeah, and Quentin Tarantino in the 90s had wanted to get Fist of Legend in a theatrical release. And it was going to be released on his Rolling Thunder DVD line. And that never came to fruition, sadly. Did, did this ever get a uh, theatrical release through the Miramax and uh, Weinstein connection? Uh, I don't think so. I think uh, this was just a part of their big buyout. Like, sometime in the 90s, the Weinsteins bought tons and tons of Kung Fu movies, mainly so no one else could buy them. And probably at the behest of Tarantino, since he had such a relationship with them. Yeah. And uh, Tarantino did want this movie to be uncut. And I guess he kind of got his wish with Iron Monkey. But they ended up severely editing that one and dubbing and rescoring that. So it, it, it was something that didn't quite resemble the original, sadly. So it, it's really hard to find the original cut of the original version of Iron Monkey in this country. I So I'm just going to go ahead and say I very much recommend this movie to anyone that has any interest in not just kung fu, but action movies in general. I think this uh, is a buy, yeah. Oh, absolutely. The choreography is so tight that, you know, any muddiness in the plot is completely blown away. It doesn't matter. It's Jed, it's all about those fight scenes. Jed is at his best here, I think, just across the board. And he gives a great performance, too, like acting performance. 
I mean, Jet's like not the most dynamic actor ever, but this utilized his strong silent type capabilities, I think, the best. And, uh, you know, I mean, the fight, the, the, the initial dojo fight, the fight with um, Karada, the fight with Billy Chow, it's, they're all, they're all just really solid. There is not a single fight scene in this movie that I feel wasn't completely up to snuff. And there, and all the fights are very distinct from one another. They, there, there's no, it's not repetitive at all. And they escalate really well. I mean, yeah. each scene is bigger and better than the last. And with maybe the exception of, I mean, with the exception of like the very first fight in Kyoto, they all move the plot forward. Like they just don't happen willy nilly. And even then, that's probably there to grab our attention early on while they set up all this other stuff. It's a show, yeah. Chen Jin's a badass, you know. And so when he shows up at that dojo, you just go, "Oh no, these guys are these guys are in for it." I've seen what he's done to the bones of your countrymen. So do you, do you have any closing uh, comments on this one? Um, more to just to reiterate, this is just one of the supreme kung fu pictures. I, this is up there with movies like Magnificent Butcher, uh, Drunken Master Two. If you want to see really the best the genre has to offer. This the Legend oh, is certainly up there, and we'll, we'll cover those other movies we I just mentioned. You know, Magnificent Butcher is one of my favorite movies. We will definitely cover that yeah. one. So these, this is this is one of the Hall of Fame kung fu pictures. Absolutely. And so, All right. Well, well, I guess it's time to sort of announce uh, what we're doing for our October slate. Oh yes, it's October. It's just about to be, and. One of our favorite our favorite kinds of movies, or among them, are you know horror pictures. Absolutely. So you know, in respect, out of respect for the Halloween season, we are going to do three horror movies. Uh, I say three because in the month of October, the Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Sylvester Stallone buddy comedy, <laughs> Escape Plan That's comes out. That's a laugh riot. <laughs> and we, uh, you know. There is a legal contract you have to sign whenever you start a action movie podcast that when a movie starring one or more of those men comes out, you have to go see it and you have to do a recording about it to get the word out. So uh, that'll be our uh, third week of October show. So we'll be seeing that the first weekend and have a review here. But otherwise, we have three horror movies to announce. Uh, We haven't quite decided the order. Well... We know the last one. Absolutely. We know. Uh, well, but but we we sort of each picked one movie. Yeah. Uh, and so, which movie did you pick? I picked um, the Blob, nineteen eighty eight Chuck Russell movie. I think it's great eighties horror. Um, it's a lot of fun. Can't wait to talk about that with y'all. Absolutely. And I I chose uh, Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, which is uh well definitely the movie that launched Jeffrey Combs' career and really just. A very another really fun one. A loose but extremely fun adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft. Absolutely, and a really gory, cheesy picture. So uh, one I can't wait to talk about. Same here, love it. And in an observation of Halloween, one of my favorite non-John Carpenter Halloween movies. Uh, it's it's sort of in my household become. Uh, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer to be watched, you know, each season alongside things like It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, which gets called out in the movie. But uh, trick or treat. Trick or treat. One of the uh, one of the only uh, anthology horror movies I can think out of, of recent years. Oh, I mean, the exception of VHS. And I think the best direct-to-video horror movie ever made. <laughs> it was not intended to be as such, but. And we're. And we'll definitely get to that on that recording. But it probably is the best DTV horror movie. (laughs) So you have the the opportunity to see these. Uh, The Blob 1988, Reanimator, Escape Plan, and finally, Right in Time for Halloween, Trick or Treat. That is our October slate. We're very excited to get to those. Oh, yes. So can't wait to talk about them. I'd also like to talk about... uh, you know, it's sort of we've sort of received some advice from a some feedback, if you will, from a few people. Um, one of which is that people would like to see us, in addition to re- doing reviews, do some segments. 
and we don't really have a lot of ideas yet for what segments we'd like to do. So if you, if, if you, the listener, have anything you'd like to hear from us or you know, see us give at least a try, uh, you know, pitch your ideas to us. Please. I've also gotten the feedback that from one listener that they are tired of us saying goodnight at the end of our recordings because uh, most of the time, most people probably aren't listening to our recordings at nighttime. That's just the time we tend to do our most recording. Yeah. Well, this is the today we're doing this one in the daytime. I don't see anything wrong with good night, but I mean, if the fans demand it. That's right. Um. So I guess we're gonna we're gonna try to figure out a new phrase to use to really <laughs> close up here. Uh, also, since we haven't done this before. How do we figure out how to get the fans to get in touch with us to give us any ideas they might have? Um, you can leave comments on the podcast.com page. You can reach me on Twitter at the Casey Lee. That's T-H-E-Casey Lee. Uh, I don't believe Bert is on Twitter at this point. I'm, I'm not a Twitter guy at the moment. I'll probably have to convert soon. And we'll eat. probably set up, a, we'll set up a show Twitter at some <laughs> point, too. Yeah, I'll have to eat all of my words about not being on Twitter that I've said for a few years now. Oh, well, can't beat them, join them. Well, you know, hey, who knew that we were going to start maintaining a weekly schedule at that, so... I, I'm happy. So, well, you know, once is arbitrary, twice is coincidental, three times is uh, that's a pattern. So we have one more to do for the pattern yes. to be established. But I don't think that's going to be a problem with no. uh, either of the movies we spoke about. Nope. So... Uh, with that in mind, you know, get get at us in regards to any segments you'd like to see. Please stay tuned for our October horror and escape plan <laughs> a thon. And uh, see you next time. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. Can't wait to do more. So, Zaijan, adios, bonsoir. Well, no, not bonsoir. Vaya con Dios. Vaya con Dios. Later, everyone. Thanks.